been. This brings us uh, your word and uh, the message this morning. Lord, help it to uh, enter our hearts and our minds and help us to serve you this week. Lord, help us to go out into our community and back to our jobs and back to our homes and to serve you this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 is where we will start this morning. Believe it or not, we are rapidly getting to the end of 1 Corinthians. Another week or two, and then we will move on. I was reading a commentary this week thinking about this sermon, and um, they had this uh, illustration that they wrote in here that somebody had written a long time ago, and I want to read it to you. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world and his parish as he travels uh, ever around the globe, speaking in every language. He visits the poor, he calls upon the rich, he preaches to people of every religion and to no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, stirring feelings which no other preacher could, bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute. Not is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shattered life with his message. Most people hate him, and everyone fears him. His name is Death. Every tomb is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been pressing this idea of the bodily resurrection. He finishes it with the section we're covering today, and he finishes it with this beautiful passage and this beautiful thought that death dies. So I titled this sermon, Death's Funeral. (laughs) Because most of the time when we go to funerals, they are not times of celebration. We lose loved ones, and we mourn their absence. Even if they're believers, we, and we trust that their souls are with the Lord immediately, when we go to a funeral, we still mourn because they're not with us anymore. And even if you have a funeral of somebody who you had a difficult relationship with, funerals still bring out emotions from us. Issues of the past come to the surface. Things that are left unresolved are left unresolved. Memories creep back and forth, both good and bad. Funerals are rarely times of celebration. Yet what Paul's showing us here, that in this current age of history that you and I get to live in, that it ends with Jesus coming back, which is a victory, which is something we can be excited about and should be excited about, something we can long for. But Paul thinks about this from a different aspect we kind of forget about sometimes. Is that yes, Jesus is victorious and we are raised to life, and that also means that death dies. So at the funeral service of death, when the world ends and death is dead, we are given an inheritance if we're believers. And what we'll see in this text is this inheritance is distributed quickly, it's distributed fully, and that this inheritance is fully guaranteed. 
We don't tend to celebrate funerals, but death's funeral is going to look more like a wedding feast than a funeral. Because it is. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and the mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always examining the Lord's excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor for the Lord in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. God, God, as we approach this text of Scripture that you have given us this morning, God, help us to, in our hearts and in our minds, elevate you. Help us to look at this text and rejoice in what you have given us. God, that death dies at your hands. There's no suffering. There's no pain with you. God, that you give us victory, and you give us a victory through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to hear your words from this text, encourage our hearts where we need encouragement, convict our hearts where we need conviction, and help us to be more gospel-centered. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's reread uh, a few verses, starting in verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Every time my family and I go to visit my mom in Amarillo, there's this thing.
Is that better? Okay. They were changed in a moment, in an instant, in the blink of an eye. That our flesh and blood as it is cannot inherit the kingdom of God because our flesh and blood as it is is corruptible. But we will be raised, bodily changed, to have incorruptibility that's wrapped up with us. And this is not pulling into Amarillo and waiting to get to the other side of town. What Jesus is telling us, what Paul is telling us in this text, is that this happens quickly, in the blink of an eye. It's a moment. We'll keep going in verse 53. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see at death's funeral, we receive this inheritance, and the inheritance is distributed quickly, in the blink of an eye, in a moment. What we also see is it's distributed fully. Charles Spurgeon, when he's commenting on Psalm 23, if you know Psalm 23, it's a funeral psalm that gets read a bunch there, and it's a beautiful psalm for that, but it's one we should look at more often. It talks about, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. When Spurgeon is commenting on that, he says nobody has ever been hurt by a shadow. Nobody's been attacked or harmed by a shadow. Yes, it is a valley of the shadow of death. Yes, it is dark. Yes, it's a little scary because we've never been through it, but it's a shadow. It has no weapons. It has no barbs. It can only be dark. So when death dies Christ has come back that's why death dies our inheritance is distributed quickly and our inheritance is given fully there's no stipulations on this there's no age limits there's no tests to pass this isn't a bait and switch of Christianity if you come and get this and then you show up and it's not quite what you thought it would be that our corruptible bodies our perishable bodies will be clothed with put on incorruptibility imperishability that our mortal bodies are clothed with immortality because death is dead. If death is dead, we do not die. Do you understand the implications of this? Because of the work of Jesus Christ, because the victory of Jesus over sin and death, because Jesus rose from the grave, because death could not hold him, because the grave could not keep him, because Jesus resurrected from the dead, it means that death's days are numbered. It is not something that is unlimited and unruly. It's a door that we must pass through. And it's scary because none of us have died before, right? I see some of you now, and it looks like you're close. <laughs> it can be scary because we have not done it. But it is but a shadow. And we can have confidence because Jesus says he's the good shepherd who walks us through the shadow of death. So where is the sting of death for a believer? Where is death's victory for a believer? It's shadow. Sure, it's dark, but it's harmless. 
that our bodies are changed and death is defeated because Jesus is victorious. Now, Jesus, uh, Paul tells us that the sting of death is sin, that sin brings about death. And God has been telling us since, since Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, 17, God tells Adam, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So follow my words, obey my commands. If you disobey, if you sin, you will die. Look what the serpent does in Genesis 3. Three through four, but above all the fruit in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. That's Eve to the serpent. And the serpent says, no, you will not certainly, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. The consequence of sin has always been death. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, the way death spread to all people, because in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We saw this just a few passages ago. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For since death came through a man and the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, for just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The consequence of sin is death. The sting of death is sin. That's where it's rooted at is what Paul's telling us. And it stings, the death of sin, uh, the sin stings in death because it separates us from God. And this separation is permanent if you are not a Christian. If you've repented of your sins, if you've turned to faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian, then we recognize that the sting of death is gone. That Christ has paid our price, that he's bridged the gap, that he's brought us to the Lord. He's brought the Lord to us. He is God. We see this. When in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is talking about the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Meaning we don't grieve like those who are uh, have no hope. We live with a hope. We live with the reality that Christ is coming back that we have an inheritance that Jesus Christ has defeated death that death's days are numbered oh death where is your sting for the believer it has no sting and then we see Paul appeal to uh, and the power of sin is the law Paul has not talked about the law in the in first Corinthians this is just something that he gets to a bunch, especially in the book of Romans, saying that there is this standard that we have to follow. There are these things that God has given us, the way that we're supposed to live, and that you and I, on our own power and in our own works, we cannot keep the law. You go read the Old Testament law and try to keep it. Good luck. But Christ did. He perfectly obeyed the law. And he imputes to us his righteousness that he earns for following the law. That we do not deserve because we disobeyed, we sinned. So that we are clothed with incorruptibility. We are clothed with imperishability. That because of the victory of Jesus over death, this inheritance that we have is given to us fully. It's not partial payments. 
we trust that our lives are far more than just material things, that God has given us a purpose, and he has placed us where he has placed us for that purpose. Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see what Paul's doing? We have this inheritance that we gain at death's funeral, an inheritance that's given to us uh, quickly, an inheritance that's distributed fully, and an inheritance that is fully guaranteed. That we are to live our lives right now with an understanding that we will have salvation when the Lord comes back, that we will be saved and brought with him. I don't play the lottery. I had a grandma who gave us lottery tickets when we were growing up on like Christmas presents. That's as much as I ever got. But I think about this sometimes. If you were to ever win the lottery, there would be things that would change in your life, wouldn't there? You would just tithe it to the church. You wouldn't do anything else, right? No. I think that if I won the lottery, I wouldn't tell anybody, but I would have a never-ending supply of oatmeal cream pies. that sweater vests would come in all various shapes and sizes on me and that I would have some of the fanciest cargo shorts you have ever seen. If we do that with temporal things, if we do that with material things, how much more true is that of our lives with the spiritual things? If we recognize that we are saved by Jesus Christ, that we are held by Jesus Christ, that we are kept by Jesus Christ, that there is no enemy that can take us away from Christ, not even death, then we can live with a confidence right now knowing that we will be with the Lord completely and fully. That this inheritance that comes when death dies is fully guaranteed. And so what that means for our lives now is that we're not left wandering around aimlessly trying to distract ourselves waiting for Jesus to come back. That when we're saved, you and I are not immediately taken to Jesus. Do you, there's a, and like That's important. When we become a believer in Jesus Christ, God doesn't go, boom, I'm going to resurrect them right now and bring them up with me. He doesn't pull us from our situations. He doesn't take us from our lives. He doesn't get us out of where he has placed us. In fact, he gives us a new purpose where he has placed us. He leaves you on earth until your time is up, and then he'll call you home. But wouldn't it make more sense if when we're saved, Jesus would just take us home in that moment and in that instant? That only makes sense if we don't think God has nothing, if we think God has nothing for us to do right now. That God has left you here for a purpose. That you encounter the people you encounter in your lives for a purpose. That you work at the place you work at for a purpose. That you parent the children you parent for a purpose. That your classmates are next to you and for a purpose. We know that de in death's funeral, when Jesus comes back, we will have an inheritance. It's distributed quickly. It's distributed fully. But this inheritance is fully guaranteed. We can live in light of this coming inheritance. This is, helps us to see that the life we're living now is temporary. 
that we can reach forward, that we can look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and recognize that when he comes back, he's going to come back in victory. The first time Jesus comes, he comes in grace. He comes as a baby born to two rural teenagers in some little podunk town right next to Jerusalem where there's more animals in the manger than there are human beings. And the first people to visit King Jesus are these smelly shepherds who have been out in the field all day long with their sheep. He goes largely undetected. His ministry is three years long. Yet when Christ comes back a second time, we are given no indication that it will be like that. The first coming of Jesus is in grace. The second coming of Jesus is in glory. We don't have a band in Ira, so let me just tell you, trumpets are not quiet. They are loud. And these trumpets are meant to announce the presence of a king. It's not going to be Jesus subtly sneaking back into the world. It's going to be, oh, there's Jesus. Coming on clouds is not a way to hide yourself and disguise yourself coming to humanity. It's meant to be seen. That he is coming in glory, ready to right all the wrongs. Very different than the first coming. Knowing that that's the inheritance that God is promising us. Knowing that our worst enemies we can imagine, death itself, are defeated. And knowing that that's going to happen and going to be true, we can cling to that. And then when life is good, still hold to that. And when life is bad, still hold to that. And let it help us be steadfast in the midst of the waves. We can live in light of the inheritance of Christ right now, is what Paul is telling us. That we can be unshakable, that we can be steadfast, that we can be immovable. Not because you and I have great power, but because we have a God who kills death. So then what you and I do now is not wasted. Remember, this is to First Baptist Corinth. They fought a lot. They had a lot of divisions. Paul wrote 16 chapters to this church, largely telling them, here's where you're wrong. Get your act together. But what he's telling us here is on the surface, these tensions, these divisions that they're facing are not between brothers and sisters. In reality, the issues that they're having here are a misunderstanding of the word of God. They're theological. Their theology is off. If they understood the resurrection correctly, then they would not be fighting about pointless things like who's the best Sunday school teacher or who is more important because they got baptized by somebody more important than somebody else or who serves the Lord's Supper the best. Instead, they would hold firm to the things that matter the most. And they would encourage one another to grow in the Lord in a way that is more valuable, right? It's so funny to me that they're fighting about those things. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, you have a man who's caught in an incredibly immoral sexual thing, with a, sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, and the church allows him to be in the church. 
thing. You're, so they're okay with some of these things, but then the more heinous sense, they're like, you, you're letting these things take place. You're not representing Christ well, but you, stay, you see what Paul is saying. saying, if you had a right theology, if you understood the resurrection correctly, you would understand that that's more important than these things. That you need to correct that brother. Not because you hate him, but because you love him, because you care for him, because you want him to be raised and be with Christ. But if he keeps acting that way, then it sure looks like he's an unbeliever who's parading around as a believer, and he'll be awfully confused when Jesus comes back in glory. Jesus was raised. This means everything. You and I have numbered days. We are not immortal right now. We will not live forever. I was talking to, to Dale this morning about a, a book, and it talked about the greatest hindrance, one of the greatest hindrances to your teaching ministry, to your preaching ministry, is that you will die. And what Paul is telling us is if we understand this resurrection, if we understand what he's saying in this text, then you don't labor in vain. Your days are not unlimited. Don't waste them. Be immovable in the Lord's work, holding on to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come again and raise the dead, defeat death. In fact, in Revelation 19, we get the story of when that happened. I want to read it to you. I'm not going to dive into all the nuances of it, but I want to read it to you because I think there's something here that we need to see that helps us see this. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 11. We haven't done this. When you read Revelation, it's pictures, right? Everybody good? So when we're reading it, think of the pictures that is being presented to us. If you will visualize these things, I know it may sound weird, it may sound a little bit of hippie saying visualize, just look at these pictures and see what the Lord is presenting with them and we'll walk you through it. Then I saw the heaven opened and there was a white horse and its rider's name was faithful and true and with justice he judges and makes wars his eyes were like a fiery flame many crowns were on his head and he had a name written that no one knows except himself and he wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god and the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses and they were wearing pure white linen and a sharp sword came out of his mouth so he might strike down the nation's with it, and he will rule them with an iron rod, and he will judge and also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And the na- he was, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So just pause. Let's look at this. You've got this rider who shows up, and he's given multiple names. Did you catch it? Faithful and true who judges and makes wars. His eyes are fiery flames. He has all of these crowns, meaning he's over all sorts of nations, but nobody knows his name. He has a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The battle hasn't started yet. His robe's already dipped with blood. That this army comes with him, who's on these white horses also. That he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to strike down the nations with this. He's going to trample on top of them with the anger of God Almighty. And his name is written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. This is God who's coming in the end. And he's coming ready to fight. This is not the wimpy Jesus we often see in culture. Listen to verse 17. Then I saw an angel 
standing in the sun, and he called out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying overhead, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of military commanders and the flesh of the mighty and the flesh of the horses and of their riders and the flesh of everyone, both free and uh, slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. All right, ever since Genesis 3, in the fall of mankind, this battle has been looming. Where God is going to come and he's going to face all of the enemies. He's going to destroy all of the enemies. That's a lot of Bible that takes place from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 19. This war has been raging for a long time, and this has now become the moment in the battle when both sides are standing there. I think of like uh, the, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia when they're at the big battle at the end, and you have everybody lined up. Maybe you're a Braveheart person, brave, just whatever movie you can think of where everybody's lined up, and they're amped up, and they're ready to go, and they're going to run at each other, and they're going to fight, and swords are blazing. And in every one of those stories, those great battles last for a long time, and it's the defining moment in all of the stories. Yet look what happens in verse 20. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with his false prophet, who had performed the signs in his presence, and he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped him with, this, uh, with these signs. And both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 19, and we're given one verse to describe the great war. What a great war it was. That our God wipes out every enemy, and it takes one verse to describe it for. We also see that the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and the birds ate their fill of their flesh. That this battle that comes at the end when Jesus Christ comes back is one-sided. That not even death stands a chance against Jesus. It's not an even match. One sentence describing it. That is how much greater our God is than all of our enemies combined. That those who align themselves with Jesus in the end win. And we again, not because we're great, but because our warrior God King is mighty. And those who don't align themselves with Jesus who align yourselves with, with anything else, lose. And the text is clear. You lose because of your sin. You lose because you were deceived, but you had the opportunity to see the truth and to not be deceived. You're not innocent. You get what is just. You get what is deserved. You get the wrath of God that you earn. While those who align with King Jesus, we do not get what we deserve. Instead, we get the grace and the mercy of God that he lavishes upon those who believe in him. We have a victory over sin and a victory over death because Jesus is God and he defeats death. So at death's funeral, it'll be a party where that inheritance is distributed quickly the inheritance is distributed fully, and it is fully guaranteed that it's going to happen, which means that right now in our lives, we can live with a confidence that that's what the end is going to be. 
So for Christians, this means it's time for us to get to work. And the way that we work, the way that we glorify God in our lives right now is not shaken by fear of things that might or might not happen. We live with a confidence that Christ is going to come back. And we live with a confidence that where the Lord has you and what the Lord has you dealing with right now in your life, whatever it may be, is not beyond God. So maybe you have pains in your body, and it's a struggle. That's not beyond the Lord. He says you'll have a changed body, and it will be changed quickly. We can live with a confidence knowing that God is our God. Who can stop him? If no one can stop God and we're believers in Jesus Christ, then what do we have to fear? Who cares who gets elected? Jesus is God. Let's live in light of that and quit building castles of the sand and rest on the finished, completed, and fulfilled work of Jesus Christ. I love this thought that I have a friend who reminds me of often because he's kind of a jerk, but everybody needs one of those good jerk friends. He says frequently to me, you will be forgotten, but God will not. Live in light of that. For unbelievers, death has a sting for you. You are not raised incorruptible. You are not raised immortal. You won't cease to exist. Instead, you spend an eternity dying. For the sting of death is sin, and your sin will not be removed, that it festers and it festers for an eternity, that it is never satisfied, that you are never content, that you are always uh, in distress, that it's always volatile, that you're not unmovable, but you're movable, and there's millions of different things for an eternity shaking and moving you. You're never settled. That you'll work, and you'll work, and you'll work, and you'll work, and in the end, it amounts to that the hours will become days, and the days will become weeks, and the weeks will become years, and the years will become decades, and the decades will become centuries, and it all amounts to nothing. That you get tired and worn out, that you need rest, that you need peace, that you need hope, and there is none to be found in hell. That is the other side of death for you. All the work decades worth of the all the time just you spend on whatever it is is a waste if you simply exist now the beauty of this is God has not come back yet that there is still time for you that God in his grace and in his mercy has extended a period for you to repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ It is no accident that you are here. It is no accident that you hear these messages. This is God having you here for a purpose and for a reason. It is God's loving providence guiding sinners to himself. So do not delay. Because we know that the Lord is not going to delay. Experience the part of life that changes today when you repent from your sin and you turn to faith in Jesus Christ.
that death loses its sting. That hell has no victory. Because Christ has risen from the dead and he's trampling over death by death. Let's follow in to battle. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can gather together, that we can hear your word, that we can uh, think about death dying. That you took care of our greatest enemies. God, the things that cause us the most stress, the things that cause us the most suffering, the things that cause us the most grief, the most pain, the most agony, the most tears, God, you have wiped them away. You are God. And you come in victory. I pray, Father, for the Christians here that you would help us to be encouraged. To know that this is temporary. That in the end, we will either die or you will come back again and you will change us. You will give us these heavenly bodies. But until then, God, give us the motivation, give us the strength, give us the energy to continue to fight for you, to continue to follow after your will, to share the gospel with the lost, to disciple the found, and to fight for you, Lord. To stand firm, to be immovable, to be unshakable, to not waste our days. God, for the unbelievers, I pray that you would help them to see that everything they're investing in, everything they're putting their hope in, everything they're putting their faith in, if it's not in you, is in vain and ends up worthless. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. It's in your name we pray. Amen.